You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Justice Brett Kavanaugh is the Supreme Court's lightning rod, despite the fact that he's at the center of the court in the majority more than any other justice. Protesters demonstrate at his home regularly and recently converged outside a Washington restaurant, forcing him to leave by the back door. And of course, he's mocked by late night comedians who won't get over that rant on his love of beer at his confirmation hearings. Stephen Colbert seems to make the most of it. Yes, we drank beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. We drank beer. Do you drink beer? Like beer? Still like beer? Drank beer? Then reach for a cold bottle of Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh beer is full-bodied for great drinkability and supreme judgeability. And a recent Marquette University Law School poll seems to confirm the obvious. Kavanaugh had by far the court's worst net favorability rating of negative 11 percentage points. The only other justice with a negative rating was Amy Coney Barrett at negative two. My guest is Barbara Perry, a presidential and Supreme Court scholar at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Barbara, from all the protests against Kavanaugh, you'd never know that he was at the center of the court. Well, I suppose we should begin by saying that the center has shifted Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that even Chief Justice Roberts now seems much more moderate and much more centrist, relatively speaking, than those like Alito and the three Trump nominees on the far, far right. But it is the case. By whatever measure we're now using, even if the center has shifted, at least Brett Kavanaugh is closer to that than he is to the far right. He's also less confrontational during oral arguments than some of the other justices, like Samuel Alito. Sometimes you think from what he says, he's going to vote with the liberals. Do you think it's deliberate? I think that is probably his personality and that the aberration was his anger at his own confirmation hearings four years ago. And we have information that Trump talked to him and said, go low and go angry. And so that that's probably not his normal approach to his public life. And that he did that in order to get through and to please Donald Trump and to please the Trumpists in the Senate and on the Judiciary Committee. So I suspect that while he's very, very conservative and certainly has a conservative background, I suspect that his personality is much more moderate than he displayed 
in public in his confirmation hearing. So that the true personality and persona of Brett Kavanaugh is probably what you see in oral arguments, and to some extent in his opinion. I mean, he's mocked more than the other justices who are far more conservative than he is. How much of that is due, do you think, to his confirmation hearings? As you said, he was angry, he was confrontational, and he had some of those frat boy comments. Yes, he had not only the unfortunate descriptions of his friend, but their unfortunate nicknames. And then what will carry him to his grave probably is, I like beer. (laughs) All said, not only with anger, because Clarence Thomas was angry because of the Anita Hill accusations at his nomination hearing. But in terms of his facial expressions, he had a rather poker face, but angry voice. Whereas Brett Kavanaugh had not only anger in his voice, but his scrunched up face. And then even when he has his resting, I'll call it resting moderate face, <laughs> it is an easily caricatured face. So some people just have facial characteristics. You know, it's Richard Nixon and his beady dark eyes and his sea nose and his dark eyebrows. Brett Kavanaugh just has a face that's easily caricatured by cartoonists, but also easily portrayed in a Stephen Colbert monologue or a Stephen Colbert cold opening cartoon. In a few cases, for example, in the Dobbs case, the abortion case, his opinion included a section that said you could limit the sweep of the abortion decision and that you won't have states going after women who go to other states for abortion. So what's his point? Is his point, as it was in the gun case, to sort of say, hey, what we're doing is not that bad. You don't really have to worry about this. I think that he probably believes that. And he also may have more moderate clerks around him. So, for example, I think the language that Thomas had in his concurrence in Dobbs about going back to reconsider gay marriage and sexual privacy and contraception, I hear the voice of fairly extreme law clerks that Clarence Thomas typically hires. And for Brett Kavanaugh, if indeed he is a slightly more moderate conservative, he may well have slightly more moderately conservative clerks. And let's face it, they do write typically the first draft of the justices' opinions. So here I think Kavanaugh's agreement with the team in his chambers, but also it does, in his mind, I'm sure, help to separate him from what he must see as the extremism from his colleagues, from the Trump era and Alito and Thomas. But still, I mean, even though he says that and he writes that, he still goes along with the majority and gives them the fifth vote that they need or the sixth vote that they want. Well, yes, and so did the Chief Justice, because I think they all wanted to end Roe. And then you also get to the issue of, you know, fool me once, shame on you, whatever it was that poor George W. Bush had trouble saying. But, you know, if I'm fooled by, I think it was Susan Collins said, oh, well, Brett Kavanaugh lied to me about upholding Roe. Well, if you go back and listen to what those conservatives were saying about Roe, they were spouting, first of all, the party line to get them confirmed because they all said the same thing. And they'd all been coached to say that, which was, yes, it's precedent. Well, that's a truism. Roe was precedent. Should they pay attention to precedent? Yes, that's one of the maxims of self-restraint of the court. But they didn't just come straight out and say, I would never, under any circumstances, overturn Roe. So nevertheless, they led some people to believe, including Susan Collins, that they wouldn't vote to overturn Roe. So if you believe that, then are you going to believe 
what the chief justice was saying in the oral arguments, which sounded like he wanted to uphold the Mississippi statute on the 15-week limitation on abortions, and yet voted to overturn Roe in effect? And are you going to believe Kavanaugh that he won't go back with the rest of the conservatives and look at and overturn the sexual privacy cases, the contraceptive cases, and the marriage equality cases? I don't think for a moment that those are safe with these five men and one woman on the bench on the right. As you mentioned, Clarence Thomas seems to still be holding a grudge for his confirmation 30 years ago. He told his law clerks two years after his confirmation, according to a 1993 article from the New York Times, that he intended to serve on the highest court of the land to make the lives of liberals miserable. So, yes. But it seems like Kavanaugh is not taking that tact. He's not. And... Good for him, because I would have argued as someone who has followed the court and studied the court for four decades now and served as a judicial fellow there in the mid-1990s, and as someone who appreciates what it takes to be a federal judge, and especially on the highest court in the land, I believe in something that's called judicial temperament. That is that a justice not only should be as neutral as he or she can be, but they should just have the personality and persona of someone with maturity and judicial temperament. And I would have made the argument that Brett Kavanaugh did not display proper judicial temperament while he was at that time a federal judge before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So my view is that he at least now, after getting on the court, is trying to hold to judicial temperament. And as we said, that might might be his normal persona anyway. Maybe that's not so hard for him. And so good for him that he's taking a different approach from the I will be angry till I die Clarence Thomas vision. And by the way, he was also an angry young man. And understandably so. He came from the deep south where he was discriminated against. He studied for the priesthood at one time. He was in the Catholic seminary. And when he heard people saying nasty things about Martin Luther King upon King's assassination, he gave up and he left. He left the church at that point. He's now come back to the Catholic church. But he's had a lot of anger in his life. And it all came tumbling out again because of the Anita Hill accusations, whether they were true or not. It certainly riled him up and he is riled to this day. And now being able to have his conservative positions become the law of the land, he's also must be doing a happy dance. So Kavanaugh was a clerk of Justice Anthony Kennedy and took his place on the court. Do you think that over time, Kavanaugh will move closer to where Justice Kennedy was? Or is he just too conservative? There's always hope, yes. And particularly since Kavanaugh has messaged through his opinions and through his demeanor on the bench and his not going out and being angry in public as Clarence Thomas has been. So I think there is hope there. And the other thing I would say as a political scientist is that political scientists, scholars who studied the court have found that across its history, 20% of justices tend to depart from the ideology their appointing president hoped they would represent on the court. And it typically those 20 percenters go from being conservative to liberals, or at least to maybe being a swing vote. So Justice Kennedy was an example of that, Justice O'Connor, 
Justice Blackman, interestingly enough, who wrote the majority in Roe v. Wade, was put on the court as a conservative by Richard Nixon, but he became a liberal vote, a reliable liberal vote. So yes, there's always hope, but nevertheless, even if the three liberals got Kavanaugh, they're still only at four. And one of my favorite elements of being a judicial fellow was meeting with the then-retired Justice Brennan, a leader of the, the Warren Court in its liberal revolution. But he would bring in his new clerks every year about this time, and he would say, what's the most important word at the court? And they were all super bright, and they'd say, justice, liberty, freedom. And he'd say, no, no, and they'd stop answering. He'd say, are you finished? They'd say, yes. He'd hold up one hand with all five fingers displayed, and he'd say, five. That's the most important word here at the court. Mm -hmm. So he was a pragmatist. And right now, even if the liberals got Brett Kavanaugh, they'd only have four votes. What they have to hope is that on some of these instances, for example, when Chief Justice Roberts voted twice to uphold the uh, ACA, uh, so-called Obamacare, maybe they could win him over uh, for these cases that are hot-button social issues that everybody cares about. We'll see what happens next term. Thanks so much, Barbara. That's Barbara Perry, a presidential and Supreme Court scholar at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When the Manhattan U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, announced new insider trading charges against a former U.S. congressman, a former Goldman Sachs banker, and a one-time FBI trainee, he issued a warning. When insider trading occurs, investors who play by the rules are left to conclude 
that the deck is stacked against them. The cases that we unseal today demonstrate our commitment to fighting that perception, and it should send a strong message to anyone who was even thinking about committing insider trading. Cut it out, because we're watching. And perhaps cut it out because many of these insider trading cases show that sometimes crime doesn't really pay. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Bob Van Voris. Bob, tell us about Brijesh Goyal, who was one of the people indicted. Uh, Brijesh Goyal was an investment banker uh, at Goldman Sachs and then moved to Apollo Global, where he was a principal. He was charged recently with insider trading. It's alleged that he uh, and a friend made $291,000 in a scheme where they traded on insider information about deals that Gold picked up while he was working at Goldman Sachs. He was only recently charged with this. His friend, a guy named Akshay Naranjan, former Barclays trader, was sued by the SEC. Goyle pleads not guilty, and Naranjan is not charged criminally, but he is uh, sued by the SEC. One of the interesting things about this case is, at least at this point, prosecutors have only alleged that Goyle made $85,000 from the split of the money here, which is dwarfed by the amount that, obviously, that he stands to gain as a principal at Apollo and as a 37-year-old in the middle of a very promising career otherwise. What kind of money are we talking about as a principal at Apollo? Well, he was looking at probably a million plus a year going forward. This was an estimate from a recruiter that I talked to. Over the years, obviously, this is going to grow. His value is going to, you know, if his career continues to be successful, he's going to make a lot of money. He's going to have a, a very high status. He is on leave from Apollo now. As I say, he's pleaded not guilty. He hasn't been convicted of anything at this point. But it, this is obviously, uh, at the very best, a huge speed bump in his career. And if he's convicted, he faces the possibility of prison, the loss of his career, and, uh, you know, all the things that go with that. His squash buddy, who's facing charges by the SEC but wasn't charged criminally, taped a conversation with him. So the supposition is that he is cooperating with prosecutors. That's right. As I say, there's no uh, criminal charges against him at the moment, and he has been identified as somebody who is cooperating with the investigators. He made, uh, as you said, he made a consensual recording for investigators with Goel, uh, according to prosecutors, uh, in which Goel incriminated himself in the scheme. This often happens. We often see this in insider trading cases. According to the SEC, Goel and Naranjan were friends going back uh, all the way to grad school, were very close, lived in the same apartment building at one point. But then you find often when somebody gets jammed up with the possibility of criminal charges in prison, they'll flip on you know, people that they were very close to, to save themselves. And uh, it, it may be that that's what's going on in this case. So the question is, these people are making huge salaries for the most part. Directors at investment banks can make more than a million dollars a year. They all seem to be making a lot of money. So why do they do this? 
Absolutely. And you look at a lot of these cases, there are more of these where you see people with just so much at risk, with great careers, making a lot of money, uh, putting them at risk for kind of, you know, low-level kind of insider trading. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what are they thinking? And from talking to people, it seems the thing that they're thinking the most is, I'm not going to get caught. This is free money. And that's basically it. These are risk takers uh, in their jobs. They're used to taking risk with a lot of money. And so they are potentially more comfortable with this kind of risk than the normal person might be. They're also confident that they can sort of manage that risk by, you know, sort of taking steps to keep uh, the information and, you know, what they're up to, keeping that secret, keeping that outside of the view of their employers and you know, potential regulators and prosecutors. And the problem with that is these are not people who are career criminals, right? So obviously, you know, this is maybe the first time out for a lot of these guys and they screw up. There's also a lot of factors that they can't control, right? They pass tips to people who maybe then pass them on to third parties who are indiscreet or who pass them on or who make the kind of trades that are going to draw attention and scrutiny. So there are a lot of different ways that these things unravel. Sometimes a disappointed spouse, you know, an angry ex will turn somebody in. Sometimes a person will get charged with a tax thing, and they'll want to get out from under that, and they'll inform on somebody that they had done an insider trade with. So there are a lot of ways that these things can go wrong, and I think a lot of the time people aren't thinking that through. And do we know how Goyle got caught? It appears that it was based on the information that was provided by his friend and by uh, market surveillance, which the SEC and FINRA are doing much more of. They've developed market surveillance tools that kind of flag potentially problematic trade following a big transaction in the market. And they're identifying people that are sort of under, you know, what used to be the level where they would be able to get caught. You don't have to make a huge trade. You don't have to necessarily be trading, you know, making really flashy options trades anymore. They are getting flagged at a much lower level, and it may be that they don't think that their trading is at a high enough level to be caught. Is there any indication that there's a lot more inside trading going on than is being caught and prosecuted? It's really hard to tell. We know certainly that there are trades out there, that there's insider trading going on that doesn't get caught. If you're just sharing a tip at the golf course or at the club and the person trades on it, it doesn't make a ton of money and doesn't tell anybody, it's going to be really hard for authorities to get at that. So there's certainly trading that goes on. How much there is, it's hard to tell, right? Because the ones that we know about are the ones where people get caught and people get identified and sued or they get prosecuted. So notionally, just talking to people, there is an idea that there are trades like that out there, but it's really hard to quantify. The one thing that's kind of interesting about that is that this is not too long after Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney in Manhattan, had a very big crackdown on insider trading at hedge funds that involved people like Rod Rodratnam, SAC Capital, that was very much in the news. And you would think that people would be dissuaded. But still, we continue to see insider trading. The new U.S. attorney for Manhattan, is he trying to crack down on insider trading? It 
it's not clear yet whether he is going to be bringing the same number of cases or whether the same investigatory resources have been put into this. Damian Williams is the new U.S. attorney in Manhattan, and most of these cases will have been initiated before he came on the job. So we'll see going forward if insider trading is a big priority for Williams or if he's just going to be charging the cases as they come up. I just want to go through a few older cases of people who have been prosecuted. And, you know, one that sticks out to me is Sean Stewart, because he tipped off his father and he ended up going to prison for it. That's right. That was a case in which Sean Stewart, uh, the former Perella Weinberg Partners banker, and he was convicted of sharing a number of tips about healthcare mergers with his father. The father then apparently passed them along to a friend of his who traded, I think, upwards of a million dollars in the tips and ended up getting caught and flipping on both Sean Stewart and his father. Sean Stewart went to trial, was convicted, and was sentenced to two years in prison. The only profit that the government was able to say that he made from this, from tipping off his father, was that when Sean got married, the father used $10,000, the money that he got in his trades, to pay for the photographer at the wedding. So, you know, obviously the risk-benefit there is just way out of line, and Stewart's career is over. He, you know, is not making the money that he once made and is barred from the industry. $10,000, a lot for a Wedding photographer, I think. Absolutely. So these are like small-time gains made. But there are some people who make huge money on insider trading. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are examples of very, very big insider trading cases. The biggest individual case that anybody is aware of is a guy named Matthew Martoma, former SAC Capital Advisors portfolio manager. He was convicted of making $276 million for the firm, for SAC Capital, trading on information about the development of an Alzheimer's drug. Raj Rajaratnam of Galleon Group, in a very famous case, was convicted of a scheme that prosecutors said netted his hedge fund $72 million. And in a somewhat lesser-known case, a Swiss trader named Mark Demain Deby admitted that he made at least $70 million from an international insider trading ring that traded on information stolen by bankers. And this was a multi-continent insider trading ring. And Demain Deby was able to cooperate and uh, avoid a prison sentence. He spent some time in jail before his trial, but he's free now. Did you recently speak to Raj Rajaratnam after his he came out of prison? I did. I went to uh, Raj Rajaratnam is running a family office. He is not able to invest money for clients as a result of his felony convictions and his seven years in prison, but he's now investing his own money, and he's got uh, a small staff of people who are working with him. He's investing in healthcare, clean energy, and some other things, some uh, real estate investments. And, you know, this is kind of his second act, but he is still trading and he's looking for, uh, you know, a way to sort of get back in the the game. He's also, he's written a book in which he is very critical of Preet Bharara and the Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. The charges that were made against him. Of course, Roger Rotnam was convicted at trial. His conviction and sentence were upheld repeatedly by judges. So he did his time. 
Does he still claim that he's not guilty? Absolutely. He claims that it was a result of overzealous prosecution, that pressure was put on the people who testified against him, and that he didn't do anything wrong, and he shouldn't have gone to prison. Did he say anything about his uh, prison stay? He did. He said that it wasn't as bad as people sometimes think. He said that he was prepared in part by attending English boarding school when he was a kid. He told me that there was one point at which he was threatened by another inmate. People tried to extort money from him because he is so famous and and so wealthy. But he said he stood up to this person, and uh, that was the end of that. I have never heard prison compared to an English boarding school. <laughs> nor, nor have I. He, he, he did it several times, and it's hard to believe, but either prison isn't that bad or English boarding school is very bad. Absolutely. So just finally, you talked to um, a law professor, Donald Langborn. Does he think any of these people don't understand that what they're doing is wrong, or they just don't think they'll get caught? Certainly they don't think they'll get caught, but Langborn suggested that a lot of the time these people, either they don't understand the law or they are rationalizing that what they're doing is not really breaking the law. The law is that if you are trading on non-public material information, you are potentially in violation of the law or if you're, you're giving tips to other people, right? So apparently uh, some people will sometimes think, well, this tip isn't you know, 100%, so it's not really illegal. But that's not the standard. It just has to be something that is important to an investment decision. And if it's non-public, you can be liable for insider trading and you can be sued by the SEC or go to prison. I love this quote. Goyle's lawyer told the judge that his client was shocked by his arrest. And the judge said, that's often the case with insider trading arrests, isn't it? That's how they. That's how it goes. When the FBI shows up at your door at 6 a.m., it can be extremely disconcerting. Thanks, Bob. That's legal reporter Bob Van Voris. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.